I'll be back with another 15 minutes of all the late news at 11 o'clock. And now here's Gene Shepard. excitement rising up like a vast fire, like a swamp fire through my soul. (laughs) Bring it up there, please, Art, please. I'm beginning to feel it. It's beginning to happen once again. (laughs) Oh, here we go. Let's go.
thank you, Art. Uh, that, that's it. Uh, that's it. Just a little, uh, a little spring celebration there. Uh, reset that, please, if you will, Art. Ah, God. Oh, you can always tell a good used harp player. I'll tell you that by the cracked front teeth. Now, I, I did that just for a very special uh, personal reason. Uh, this is a... What day is this? Nothing to you, of course. I, we had to stand that. There's no day, there's no night. Art goes through life wearing those black shades. And there's just simply no day or no night in your life, Art. It's just one long, uh, thumb-smudged, gray... Uh, <laughs> uh, that's right. Uh, by God, there we got a man, and this is opening day. Now, this may mean nothing to most of you, and I feel sorry for you. I really do. Now, uh, I, I, uh, I, you know, I was walking down the street today, you know, down 6th Avenue, see, and it was a kind of a chilly day, the crack of sun coming down once in a while, you know, it's about 49, 50, 51 degrees, just on the edge. And I'm walking down 6th Avenue, and uh, I walk past this little cigar store, and I can hear the radio roaring out. The guys get the radio in there. There's 50 guys in there, you know, buying cigars and stuff. And I heard him mention, and in the fourth inning, the Cincinnati. I thought, my God, it is opening day. Now, it matters not whether you're interested in in sports. We're not, it's just not a sport concept that we're dealing with here. It's opening day of the baseball season today. The Cincinnati Reds took on the San Francisco Giants today in Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati. And uh, they have been doing this. The opening day has been an opening day. In other words, the official opening day has been celebrated in Cincinnati. Why do you know why they always play it first in Cincinnati? The first game's always in Cincinnati. Well, Cincinnati was the first major league baseball team. The, the actually first professional team was the Cincinnati club. And so, uh, you know, kind of like, like an honor. They let them always open a season. They have done this for many, many eons. And uh, they play the first game, and then the rest of the league begins the next day, like tomorrow. You know, the rest of the league starts playing. Well, the Cincinnati Reds began to play, see, in 1871. Now, that's 102 years ago. That's a long time in this country. <laughs> a long time. Now, that's a, you know, that, that, uh, that, uh, that is already approaching... European antiquity, at least in the game field, and uh, it certainly doesn't uh, doesn't compare with Westminster Abbey or something like that. But when something's over a hundred years old, you got to respect it. I mean, whether or not you dig it or not, it's still a hundred years old. It's a lot longer than professional football, and a uh, hundred years. Well, they they they've been playing uh, right there by the banks of the Ohio River. For a hundred years, or better now, well, it's, it's uh, 1871, this is 73, so that would be at least 102 years. And they must have been playing longer than that, you know, before they decided to make this professional deal and, and, and go around the country and play baseball. Well, now, this is, we're not talking about sports. Don't we? Say, Mr. Shepard, I can't stand baseball. Why do you? There's always these poor, niggling little people, you know. And uh, I, I just feel sorry for people whose interests are so narrow 
that they cannot encompass the entire, or at least a large part of the of the world they live in. And uh, that's not to say to be a baseball fan, but the, the 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 thing that makes opening day exciting to many many people, I'd say millions, is not baseball. I don't know. It's only peripherally related to baseball. It is the closest thing that we in America know to a true national rite of spring. It is a genuine spring ritual. <laughs> in other words, baseball season always is in the earliest days of spring. And it's a kind of an official statement. Spring really is here. And, and any ritual is almost completely inexplicable. One cannot explain rituals. So if you do not understand this ritual, if you do not buy it, then there's no way for me to explain it to you. <laughs> no way. So don't expect any explanation. Because you can't. How can you... Uh, uh, I'm sure that the Druids could not explain their rituals to non-Druids. They could tell them the outline of it, you know. They could say, well, then we take this virgency and we, we uh, at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning, we get together and we burn the sacred incense and we can do this. And then finally the sacred high priest takes this uh, dagger. And you would still say, well, yeah, but what do you do? He'd say, well, if you don't understand it, you never will understand it. And there's no way for me to tell you, right? That's called ritual. Ritual goes so deep in, in the soul of a human being <laughs> that, uh, that you cannot explain it. Now, it does not necessarily go deep in the soul of every human being. That's, uh, but spring does happen to everybody. Spring happens to everybody. Now, spring rituals occur even if they occur subconsciously. A spring ritual. It's, it's the announcement that another year has passed, and that's why springs are curiously sad in one respect, you know. Uh, who was it? Uh, I think it was Earl Wilson who said April is the saddest month. Yes, it was one of the, one of the famous Earl Wilson columns. Was, Earl Wilson? was that the late Dorothy Kilgallen, I believe, said that? That's her style. Spring is the saddest month, or April is the saddest month. Yes, that's, that, that's right. It's Dorothy Kilgallen said that. But... Uh, here, uh, why? I mean, well, it's also the, the the most exciting month. See, everything goes together in pairs like that. It can it can on one hand be the most exciting, the other hand be the worst drag, uh, and you alternate during periods of change, which is what spring is really. Spring is change, friend. It is not summer. It is not winter. It is change. There's great feelings of unrest. Do you ever feel that feeling? Aren't even you must feel this? It must have filtered even down to the lower reptiles. As you're walking along 6th Avenue, do you feel that inexplicable moment of exhilaration, which, of course, goes against all your whole hippie background. You cannot, uh, you cannot feel this moment of exhilaration without at least having something making smoke in funny or some, you know, some, <laughs> some, some damn thing that's caused it. Yeah, that's the inexplicable, see? There's no explanation for it. You walk along, you feel this exhilaration. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. It's fantastic. Oh, I'm alive. It's going to be a fantastic summer. I'm going to do it all this year. It's going to happen. And then 20 minutes later, for no reason at all, you're sitting in a chock full of nuts and you're, you're staring gloomily ahead. And you're looking at the mirror and you're looking down at your, your chocolate brownie. And you say, what the hell is it all about? Well, that's the essence of change. The great pendulum swings in the human breast. And we feel urges because we are part of the animal kingdom, friends. 
whether we like it or not. And we feel primal urges which are related to the earth and the stars and the sky and the tides and the sand and the wind. Even if you live in a city like New York where everything is practically paved over and it's artificial, still the the soul, the the uh, that little that little tiny knot of the of the animal in us, the zoological knot, relates to the unseen pendulum of the spring. Fantastic. It is spring. And all of us are celebrating it together, whether we like it or not. I don't care how rich you are, you cannot say, well, I'm going to have my spring three months from now. I don't believe in spring this time of year. No way, friend. Nor can you say, what the, what the hell is he talking about? Huh. With the world in flames, with all them rotten politicians in? No, sorry, friend. Spring goes on. Summer will come. Fall will occur, which incidentally is another time of great unrest. Also a time of curious celebration. Yes. Uh, in a sense, a very real sense, the World Series is the it's the fall harvest celebration of America. It's the it's the celebration that another summer, another great harvest has been taken in, and the winter will set in shortly, and we celebrate with the long shadows falling over the arena. And that's the thing about a baseball park, the symmetry of it. The great round ovoid curve of it is almost egg-shaped, which incidentally is highly significant. The egg has always played a ritual symbolism uh, throughout all of human history. And uh, here's this great oval, and we're all sitting there together, all, all in, a, in curious communication over a, a total abstraction. A man with a stick and a ball hurtling through the, through the spring air, and men wearing uniforms, uh, and, and incidentally, ritual Kabbalistic uniforms that have, have strange devices on them that, uh, that are, are devices that have very little to do with you. The very few baseball uniforms that have picture people on them, they're almost all symbolic. A cardinal. Yes. A bear cub. Uh -huh. The animal kingdom plays a great role in these rituals. Yes. And even our early forebears, the Cleveland Indians, see an Indian. Yes, that's right. It's all part of it. It's just a, they don't name ball teams things like uh, uh, the uh, Cleveland Grapefruits. Uh, you know, although that could be a good name for that club. This is W.O.R. New York, friends. <laughs> Speaking of, <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, this is a this is a very interesting uh, phenomenon. To me, it's 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 far more than a game. It is. It's a it's it's a it's a ritual, and and a, and it's a ritual that goes deep into our subconscious. And they celebrate it, by the way, far more virulently out in the country where they feel the spring coming on. Opening day in New York is interesting. But New York, you see, mutes everything. 
It always has, because it is a great artificial creation which wards off spring, it wards off summer, it wards off even winter. Most people live their lives in air-conditioned cubicles, so spring, summer, winter come and go, and you only feel a faint inkling of it. But in places like Cincinnati, where for miles around the town you could feel the spring coming on, you could smell the river changing, river smells differently, you know, and in April and it does in say December you smell it and you can see the ro- the water rising it's the flood time the water rises that means the snows are melting all over the upper reaches of the river and the water is rising and the the sense of spring is really almost almost too much to bear sometimes you have to do something about it and so for that reason and and many others but for that reason alone uh, opening day has always been sold out in Cincinnati. To get an opening day ticket in Cincinnati is the equivalent of almost getting to be uh, nominated by the Liberal Party for mayor in New York. It doesn't mean much, but at least you got it. <laughs> and it, it's it's a uh, it's it's a. Uh, and I, I, I attended one of the great spring solstice rites that I ever attended was one time, the only time I was ever lucky enough to attend an opening day in Cincinnati. It was a great afternoon. Uh, before we go any further, let's do a couple of big dinghies here. Speaking of spring, uh, spring rites, uh, you probably, uh, boy, I'll tell you, this meat thing is, is, is fantastic. And if you uh, eat in town... And uh, eat at restaurants a lot. Uh, it's not easy to have a meat <laughs> boycott. Uh, I would like to suggest you find out about the House of Chan, which is incidentally a very, very fine Chinese restaurant. They're at 52nd and 7th in the heart of Manhattan. And some great scenes have been played out right there in that restaurant. Do you know that, that years ago, you know who's, well, whose favorite restaurant that's, that, that, that was? That was Fred Allen's favorite restaurant. And Fred Allen used to go down there and sit in that booth night after night after night. You know who used to eat in that restaurant when when he was playing on Broadway? Uh, guys like, well, Bob Hope used to eat down there. All kinds of, it's right in the heart of it. It's right next to the to the, uh, to the big theater there. And and uh, in the Winter Garden, you know, it's right down the street there. It's at 52nd and 7th. And the food is superb. 35 years they've had great food there. And they have 117 different ways of preparing chicken. Yeah, and they're all good. And uh, Mr. Chan says that he will reduce by as much as 30%. To, he's, he's behind the uh, boycott on beef, and he reduced by as much as 30% the prices on all chicken dishes. <laughs> they got a great bar there, and they're open seven days a week, and they have lunch and dinner. It's a good place. Uh, please, will you lay it on me, uh, Al? Uh, please, help. It was getting about time to buy a new car Cause the one I was driving wouldn't go too far I was heading for my dealer to make a trade When a Mazda went by, really made the grade Piston engine goes But the Mazda goes So I took a new Mazda out for a drive Man, that rotary engine is really alive You can cruise in silence hour after hour With a rotary engine just spinning out power Piston engine goes But the Mazda goes. 
There's nothing like it on the road today. The rotary engine is here to stay. No valves or pistons to grind or rub. So if you want to belong, you join the rotary club. Piston engine goes. But the Mazda goes. Yeah, buy a Mazda and belong. Visit one of the 28 Mazda dealers in the greater New York area for a test drive. You know, when that, that car was first being advertised before it even came to America, you know that uh, they, they had a, a campaign all around the country, and a lot of people thought it was a new light bulb coming out. And you mean you guys never heard of a Mazda bulb? Yeah, I'm telling you, ignorance knows no end. I'm constantly turning over rocks and finding new vistas of, uh, of incomprehension. Uh, while we're uh, on the subject of incomprehension, uh, for those of you who do not understand the mystique of the Army-Navy store, I would like to recommend a visit to Prozies. You ever go? Do you like Army-Navy stores? I don't know any guy that doesn't dig them. I, 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 I hate to say this. I think they're essentially masculine, though. I mean, men love Army-Navy stores. I don't know. They're just great places to go. And if you're looking for a really good one, if you're living over in Jersey, we would like to suggest Prozy. They've been there since 1923, so they're they're there. They're they're official, and they're celebrating their 50th anniversary. And they have some great buys just on that premise alone. For example, they're selling the famous Converse All Star sneaker, which is one of the best sneakers ever made, for 7.99, which is way below the price you pay around. This is during their big sale. Uh, they have uh, work pants, work shirts, all the great Levi's and all that stuff, Lee's and everything. And uh, the Prozy store in North Arlington, just like to go there and walk around in it, is at 35 Ridge Road. It's North Arlington, Jersey. And in Hackensack, they're at 121 Main Street. Prozy's. And uh, it's 10 minutes from the GW Bridge. There's parking in the rear, and they will again treat you like a customer. First time. That, that is a culture shock right there. That's Prozy's. It's a nice place to shop. Oh, you know, it's spring. And uh, along with spring comes Bach beer. Please. Hey, guess who was in here yesterday? Doc Oglethorpe, the psychiatrist. Yeah, and when I go to take his order, he says, Connor, I think I'm going nuts. Four nights now I've been having the same dream, and I can't figure out what it means. Well, now I can see this is serious. So I say, you want to tell me about it? And he says, well, it's a weird dream, Connor. All very strange. I have the feeling I'm made out of glass. I'm very cold, and I seem to have three rings tattooed on my stomach. And I say, Doc, I may be all wet, but it sounds to me like you dreamt you were a bottle of Ballantine beer. And those three rings were for purity, body, and flavor. What he says, a bottle of Ballantine beer, that's stupid, that's dumb. But wait a minute. That would explain how come in the dream I had to unscrew my hat. So just like that, Doc's all cheerful again. And he orders around a Ballantine for everybody in the place. Some world, huh? Hey, let me get you another Ballantine. On the house. Yeah, uh, Ballantine Bach Beer is now available. That's Ballantine Bach Beer. It's now available at Falstaff Brewing Corporation, St. Louis, Missouri, and other cities. It's Ballantine Bach. It's, uh, <laughs> well, it says you're doing the same style as the commercial, all right? It's uh, Bach Beer time. That's a kind of a great time. You like Bach Beer? Dark Beer? Of course. That'll make your cold, your, that'll make your pelt glossy. <laughs> I'll tell you. Uh, all right, all right. Uh, I'll sit with the echo chamber in there. I'll, I'll give you the cue there. Uh, just a minute. Hold it. Uh, all right. One, two, three. Brooklyn! 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 
Yes, there's an important announcement for all you natives and you victims of Brooklyn. I've been getting about 5,000 letters in the last month saying, when the hell are you coming to Brooklyn to sign copies of your crummy book? Well, <laughs> at last, we're going to go to Brooklyn. Uh, I'm going to be out in Brooklyn. That's me, live in prison, with my pen in hand, signing copies of the Ferrari in the Bedroom, which, by the way, is now in its fourth printing. For those of you, you might have seen the review that was uh, reprinted in the Times a couple of weeks ago, so you know what it's like. But anyway, the Ferrari in the Bedroom, we're going to be in Brooklyn, live and in prison, Monday, April the 9th, at 5 p.m., Abraham and Strauss, Brooklyn. I repeat, Monday, 5 p.m., April the 9th, Abraham and Strauss of Brooklyn. You don't have to buy a book to come down there. In the book department. And it's your only chance, Brooklyn. Don't boot it. We repeat. Don't boot it. Once again, Brooklyn. You lost the Dodgers and you'll have a lose Shepherd, so get out there. It's spring, you know. What are you going to do, spring man? You know, uh, I, I want to. I, I just want to. Whatever, because you know, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an artist's uh, uh, duty to the public to report, not to the public, but you know, to to life to report on uh, on the unreportable, on that which we rarely talk about. But let's face it, spring does cause a lot of a lot of mind blowing. I'll bet this. I'll, I'm going to make a. I'm going to make a statement about spring right now. Spring is always romanticized, you know, in 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 uh, songs and in poetry, and it is. It's a very romantic time. This is one of the reasons, by the way, why traditionally weddings have been held in June. This is spring, you know. It's springtime. Uh, I also feel. I don't know the statistics, but I'll bet any money that more. Affairs are begun in the spring. <laughs> I'm talking about affairs, hanky pankysville. I'll bet more affairs are begun in the spring than at any other time of the year. Also, I will I will suggest this: more divorces are contemplated in the spring of the year. Contemplated. I'm not saying that they're carried through. You know, people sitting. Uh, moodily looking down into their coffee grounds at the chock full of nuts. And uh, I'm talking of all sexes. You notice today one must say all sexes, not necessarily both. So uh, uh, he's contemplating, I'm not slighting anyone. So he's contemplating, looking, he, she, it, looking down into the coffee grounds. Oh, God. This year I'm going to do it. I'm just going to have to do it. That's the contemplation. On the other hand, and this is very closely allied, he, she, it, all sexes, sitting in the same chock full of nuts, looking into the same coffee cup, looking across that U-shaped counter, and you see this fantastic, radiant vision of incredible, incredible libidinous, magnetic force has floated in and has taken this seat over there and has, with a gentle, graceful wave of the hand, ordered a cup of coffee and a brownie, just like you've got, which shows automatically that you two have got common interest right there. And he, she, it looks up, and for one brief instant there is a, you know, that 
the, the eyes catch each other across the, across the counter. And there's this, this sudden feeling of flustering down inside. You look away. You look back. It was not a mistake. There was an unmistakable communion of souls there for that brief instant. An entire lifetime. An entire fantastic parade of, of libidinous adventures have gone by in 30 milliseconds. My God almighty. And already you're saying, i got to get rid of this chick. Oh, she's on my back. Yes. We live a million lifetimes, sometimes in the space of an hour. Ships that pass in the night. Icebergs that melt in the spring. Fish that swim up the great rivers of life to spawn. You are but one of the salmon. Propelled by forces you don't know anything about. You don't know why. The salmon cannot tell you. Well, the reason I'm leaving the ocean and I want, I just want to see the river. He doesn't even remember the river. He doesn't know what does it. He falls in with trillions of other salmon and they begin to swim upstream. And so it is. The great unrest settles into the soul of mankind every spring. Every spring. And some of us curse it. And I am not one of those. Because many people are afraid of any emotion. You notice this, Art? Some people are afraid of any emotion. It disturbs the safety of their days. They get very nervous when you talk like this. And I'm sure a lot of people have already switched off and they're looking for something that, quote, makes sense. <laughs> Do you think Julie Andrews singing selections from Sound of Music in stereo makes sense? My God. What makes sense? I've always wondered what that phrase meant. Makes sense. What madness. Because it implies there is a logical order to things. And this has always eluded man. It'll always elude everything. And great religions rise and fall. Philosophical systems rise and fall. And all the while, your glands keep yelling down inside your gut for reasons you'll never understand. None of us will. Freud, Dr. Rubin, Jacqueline Suzanne, nobody. All the great minds of our time. <laughs> yes. You sit there looking down into your coffee cup saying, Oh, God. I guess that's the true sign of life departing the body I think people begin to die long before they are deceased and I think that the true sign of a person beginning to die is when he no longer feels those things gone and then he begins to think that those who do feel them are some kind of nuts what is it come on come on grow up will you you know, how many times you heard that me said to you? And I remember that day in Cincinnati. I, I began to understand this. I didn't, you know, to me, baseball, it's a game, great. Dig the game. But it was the summer, spring, ancient druidic ritual about it that began to soak into my... You know, man has played games since the very earliest of unrecorded history. 
And they, they feel that many, many commentators, not necessarily commentators, scientists feel that one of the curious things that separates man from the rest of the, you notice I didn't say the lesser beasts, from one of the, from the others, is his curious affinity for abstract ritual. Very few animals have been known to walk around wearing good luck charms around their neck. No. There's never been a case where a bear has taken the claw of a fallen enemy and put it on a string around his neck to ward off defeat by other enemies. Man. Man. Games are with us always. Even ladies who hate baseball find themselves playing bingo. Why? Why do you sit there and holler all of a sudden, Bingo! What does this mean? I have had victory over my enemies. I have vanquished the foes. I have emerged victorious. My enemies are lying in disarray on the field. Their broken bodies strewn around my victorious chariot. Bingo! Is it the miserable little 74 cents you get for getting bingo? No, it's the victory. Aged gentlemen squat over canasta cards. You walk through Washington Square in a village like I did this morning, and the spring brings them out. Yeah, it brings them out. The young and the old, all sitting around checkerboards, watching, constantly looking. And two or three guys are sitting there mulling for weeks over a single chess move. The game, the ritual. The New York Times crossword puzzle. And on this particular Saturday, and it was a Saturday this opening day, I'll never forget it. I happened to be, you know, I was going to school. And and my roommate in school lived down in Cincinnati. And he was going home for the weekend, you know. And he says, uh, hey, he said, uh, how'd you like to go home with me this weekend? Yeah, yeah, I... Yeah. He said, hey, he says, my old man's got a box seat at Crosley Field. I'm going back for the opening game. Well, that was another story, see. I said, well, uh, opening game. Who are the Reds playing? I said, Pittsburgh. Opening game. And so we piled into his Ford convertible. We drove through the night. We arrived at his home in Cincinnati, and the next morning, got up, you know, breakfast, sat down to play the eggs and all that stuff. And uh, his old man was was uh, all excited. It was opening day. He had a box seat. And, and I did not at that time realize the significance of this. The old man uh, says, oh, boy, you know. Uh, and I, I, I'll tell you even who pitched. You curious who pitched? Ewell Blackwell hurled the opening game. And uh, <laughs> Blackwell was pitching for the Cincinnati Reds. And we, we, we got in his car. We went down to the park. Millions of people. And it was a cold kind of a, a raw, edgy spring day. Not the classical spring afternoon 
that we all think of, but it was unmistakably spring because as we drove down south and drove through that that great Ohio Valley, we drove down through southern through southern Indiana and over into southern Ohio there, you could see on all sides the rolling bright chartreuse green of the beginning fields that were just beginning to take hold and you could smell it in the air. And you could see flocks of birds would rise and fly over the roads as we drove down towards Cincinnati. And when we got into town that opening day that morning, when we walked out, I, I was not used to the river smell yet because I had never lived next to a big river in my life. And I, I smell this smell. The river smell is very strong in spring and in fall in Cincinnati. And it's an exciting, curious smell. It's the smell of a million kinds of life going on and awakening. It's the smell of catfish moving upstream. The smell of deep water. The smell of mud on the banks and cattails beginning to germinate and grow and all this. You could smell it. And then we, we got into the into the parking lot. Millions of people are coming in. Their cars are moving in. Great crowds of people all just walking forward towards one thing. This great green oval. And traditionally, ball fields have been green, which incidentally is also, interestingly enough, connected with the whole idea, the, the Shibui concept of Japan. The natural color of, of nature is green. Green, this great green stadium standing there right on the banks of the river. And we all filed in, millions of people. I, I could feel the excitement welling. And, and remember, it wasn't the game. It was, it, you know, I'm, I'll tell you that the, that the guy who went to the, went to the spring ritual at Stonehenge, your average druid, was not going there for the sacrifice of the virgin. He was going there for a lot more than that, and that was only incidental to it. And so he, and, and by the way, the pirates were the sacrificial virgin that day. If anybody, any of you know anything about Ewell Blackwell, you know what I'm talking about, especially the Pittsburgh pirates of that period. All, all Blackwell had to do was to walk out, out, of, out of the dugout, throw his hat on the mound, and the ball game was over. But that isn't the point. Not really, and yet it was connected with it. Because all, all spring rituals, ultimately, are involved in life and death. And this day, it was the death of the pirates and the beginning of life of the reds. And so we moved into this great stadium. And we were sitting out along the left field foul line, about 70 80 feet back at third base, out on that left field line, down low on the field. You could smell the grass, and you could see places where it was not yet fully grown in. And the groundskeepers had seeded it. You could see the seed, the grass. We were low enough to smell the grass. And that's one of the great things they're going to miss, by the way, ultimately, in all the tartan turf, the, the polyethylene turf and so forth is the smell of that grass at a ballpark on a hot day. And we could see all the seeded places out there. And we all filed in, and people began to gather into this great stadium. The opening day was set for 1 o'clock in the afternoon. 
was the opening, the opening pitch was to be hurled. And at 12.30, the ceremonies began. A band marched out. No ritual is anything without music. And the band marched out. And these girls came out, the drum majorettes. I don't have to tell you what a girl looks like when you're going to Indiana University and you are a sophomore and a six-foot-seven-inch drum majorette complete with an unbelievable set of glands comes out there dressed in a costume that weighs less than a quarter of an ounce. I do not have to tell you much about spring urges. And the, the band comes marching out, the flags flying. <laughs> and uh, somebody made a speech. You could hear the echoing voice going around this, this stadium. You hear the speech saying, Ladies and gentlemen, we want to welcome you today to another historic opening day at Crosley Stadium. Since 1871, the Cincinnati Reds, then known as the Cincinnati Red Stockings, later the Cincinnati Red Legs, and now the Cincinnati Reds, have played on this site for many, many years. And traditionally, opening day has been celebrated by the National Baseball League here in the birthplace of professional baseball. This afternoon, we are beginning another season. We wish the Cincinnati Reds good luck this year as we wish the Pittsburgh Pirates good luck this year. And now, to begin the new season, we introduce to you, in the third base dugout, the Cincinnati entry in the National Baseball League. Let's give a welcome to the Cincinnati Reds. And at that point, the, cr the, the club came charging out on the field in their brand new spring uniforms, red and white, bright red hats, and the crowd, just a fantastic roar. <laughs> it echoes out over the river. And striding out to the mound was six-foot, eight-inch Ewell Blackwell. Tall, lean, lethal. Blackwell was known as many things. He had many names. He was called the whip by some people. He was called the snake by other people. He was simply called bad news by most batters who had to face him. Blackwell was a left-hander. Excuse me, a right-hander. Who had such a low underhand, looping, whip-like, snake-like delivery that to a batter facing Ewell Blackwell, it looked like the ball was approaching him from down the third baseline. From somewhere in the grass, it would come leaping out. And Blackwell walks out on the mound. Over on third base was Grady Hatton. Grady Hatton pulls his hat down low. And hanging loose and mean and big over at first base was Ted Klazuski. 
more muscles than any human being ever was allowed to have. And out in left field, right close to where we were sitting, was Hank Sauer, another guy that could hit a long, mean ball. And the first nameless, scurrying, hapless Pittsburgh pirate came up to the plate in his gray traveling uniform. It was the moment of the sacrifice, and the crowd was waiting. The virgin was laid upon the altar. Blackwell stared down long and hard, getting his sign. Sign? A sign was ridiculous to Blackwell. All Blackwell had to do was lean back, make that arm, that big right arm, sweep the grass, and throw that low, mean, ugly, mean sidearm whip-like pitch from third base someplace. And that's what he did. That wind-up. And we could hear that ball. Whoosh, boom. Into the glove. And the umpire leans back and hollers, Strike! One! And the crowd, Wah! Wah! And we were all together. It was another summer sacrifice had begun. And the ritual was being played out on the green fields of the growing, rich, verdant Ohio Valley. And the smell of the river drifted in all during the game. The summer had officially begun. And now all the divorces could start and all the affairs were official. And life was good. WOR New York, stay tuned for Lester Smith and the News. This is the news in detail on the hour from the WOR Newsroom. Congress has drawn its first blood in the Watergate affair. L. Patrick Gray, President Nixon's choice to run the FBI, will never sit in the chair occupied by J. Edgar Hoover. Tonight, Mr. Nixon apparently saw the handwriting on the wall, acknowledged that Gray would not be confirmed by the Senate, and withdrew his nomination of Gray to be the permanent FBI director. Gray's effort to assume the job permanently had been blocked for months, largely because of Watergate. He'd been criticized by senators for turning over FBI reports on the investigation, to White House counsel John Dean. Others had accused Gray of making political speeches on President Nixon's behalf in the campaign last fall. This afternoon, the Senate Judiciary Committee agreed to a showdown confirmation vote, but Senator John Tunney said that it was obvious that Gray would never be confirmed. Another reaction came from Republican Senator Edward Gurney of Florida. I think this was inevitable. Uh, probably two weeks ago, it was obvious to all of us that he wouldn't be confirmed. Uh, I think he was a good acting director of the FBI, but he got caught up in the politics of Watergate. A mailman was shot dead and his partner wounded tonight when two gunmen tried to rob their mail truck near Wall Street. It occurred at Beekman and William Street when the bandits in a green van cut off the mail truck. 54-year-old William Hickey of Brooklyn tried to run, but he was shot once in the head and fell dead. 25-year-old Lawrence Crawford tried to get away, but he was grazed by a bullet in the neck. The gunmen then drove off in their own van. Apparently, they'd been after the securities and documents often dropped in Wall Street mailboxes every day. We are losing the battle against inflation. Tonight, it became apparent that the American consumer can expect to pay more, much more, for nearly everything in the coming months, for food, for fuel, clothing, and most manufactured goods. The wholesale price index is up a record 2.2% in March, Processed foods were up over 4.5% in one month. Eggs were up 17%. Meats, poultry, and fish up 7%.
Fruits and vegetables up almost 8%. Dairy up 2%. Presidential reaction? White House News Secretary Ron Ziegler said what the administration has done already will tend to slow the inflation of food prices in the second half of this year. George Meany is impatient. He says the labor may demand big raises unless something is done and soon about prices. Something was done by the Grand Union supermarket chain today. It announced that starting tomorrow, it's cutting prices 10 cents a pound on beef, pork, lamb, and veal products. WOR's Roger Skibbenis asked Grand Union's President Charles Rodman if it's simply a question of yielding to the meat boycott. I would say that the thing has been building. There has been a slowdown in the movement of meat uh, in our stores and I think in the industry generally for the last three or four weeks. Uh, the boycott itself this week, and it's too early to tell because the week isn't over with yet, uh, will have an impact of somewhere between 20% to, say, 40%. It's varying by areas. I would say that the instant of the boycott has triggered our decision to take this merchandising action. By taking this action, are you going to be losing money, or do you feel that you can make it up on volume? We will definitely be losing more money than we're losing now in our meat operation unless customer reaction to this is strong and makes it possible for us to maintain this. Apart from this, <clears throat> apart from this present boycott, many people are looking for long-term solutions to these rising food prices. What is that in your opinion? In my opinion, the only solution in the long term is to increase supply 